I know we're all hopped up on the sugar that we stole from our children's Halloween baskets. I just found out that they have dark chocolate Reese's peanut butter cups, and I am a very happy person. My sons don't have a clue that they exist because they didn't get any of them. So um, over the last several weeks, we've been in the midst of a series focusing on our finances. And a couple of weeks ago, Lee talked about the fact that really God owns everything. And he entrusts resources to us. He basically says, I'm going to give you a business. You're going to be a business owner. I want you to steward the resources that I give you. And I want you to use these resources for a couple of things. One, to build your faith. But secondly, to, to cultivate relationships with other people. And then last week, Lee focused on the, the very exciting topic of the tithe. <laughs> and the point of that was this that we declared through our tithe that God is our God, our money is not. And I know that all of us kind of go, well, yeah, God's God. My money's just money. But really when we come down to it, it doesn't always play out that way, does it? Money sometimes competes with God for our attention. Go with me to Exodus chapter 32. I know that two or three of you were probably studying that this morning. Um, We're going to look at kind of a dark spot in Israel's history because there's plenty of them, but this is one of those that it's, we're going to look at a story that may not at first glance have a lot to do with finances, but when we really get down to it, it has everything to do with our resources. And I want to give you a little bit of backstory as you're turning to Exodus chapter 32. The, we know the, the story of the Israelites. At this point, they have been in bondage for about 400 years in Egypt. That means generation upon generation upon generation, all they've known is, that, is slavery. All they've known is serving somebody else at their whim. And then suddenly God raises up a guy named Moses. And he, cha- he charges him, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to tell Pharaoh, the God of the universe the creator and sustainer of everything has chosen a people, this people whom you look at as slaves. He looks at them as his chosen priesthood, a holy nation for him. And he's telling you, Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh, being the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, just balks at that. I'm not going to let my slave labor go. Get out of here. And so God has to soften his heart up a little bit. And he begins to use plagues, turns the water of the Nile into blood, causes frogs to begin to infest their, their cities. Then flies come in and gnats and boils all over their skin. Locusts begin to devour their crops. Hail begins to rain from the sky. Darkness covers their nation. Each and every one, if you really look at it, each and every one of those plagues actually targeted a different one of Egypt's gods. Basically saying the God of Israel is a much more powerful God than any of these so-called gods that you worship. But even though all of these things were happening and were decimating the wealth of Egypt, Pharaoh would not bend a knee until finally the last plague when God takes the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn son. And at that point, he relents and says, fine, get out, go. I mean, he, 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 he broke down the Egyptians so powerfully that when they're leaving, they're literally throwing gold and silver at the Israelites as they're leaving. Just, just leave. Don't come back. And we know how this story goes. God leads them to the Red Sea and they're encamped there. And all of a sudden they hear the Egyptian army descending upon them because Pharaoh has once again hardened his heart and says, what have I done? I let my slave labor go. I'm either going to bring them back or I'm going to utterly destroy them. 
And God miraculously parts the waters and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. And when the Egyptian army attempts to come and follow them through the waters, God brings the waters slamming back together, decimating the most powerful army in that time without the Israelites lifting a finger or losing a single person. But God's not finished with this because he brings them through the wilderness He provides everything that they need. When they wake up in the morning, they have food, manna, sitting on the ground for them to go collect. At night, he brings quail for them to eat. When they need water, he provides water out of the very rocks in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of a desert. And he leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to the base of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And it's here that God says, I am going to establish my covenant with you, my people. In the same way that I've made a promise to Abraham hundreds of years before, that I would make a great nation out of him and I would bless the world through him. I'm now going to establish that same covenant with you. You are going to be my people. I will be your God. And so he has Moses, the leader of this group of people come up onto Mount Sinai. And for 40 days, Moses is with God as he establishes the covenant with Israel. Part of that covenant is the 10 commandments that we studied earlier this year. But that's just a part. And from chapters 19 through 31, we see God establishing his covenant with his people and saying, this is how I want my holy people to live in the midst of all the nations so that when they look at them, they will see that they are ambassadors of their God. Well, as Moses is up there and as the days become weeks and weeks turn into a month and even beyond that month, the people start going, what's happened to Moses? I mean, he was our leader and he was, he was our connection to Yahweh, our God. What's going to happen to us? Cause we're still in the middle of the wilderness. We haven't made it into the promised land yet. What's going to happen to us? And they start getting nervous. God bless you. And so we read now in chapter 32, verse one, how the people respond out of their fear. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, who was Moses, brother, and also his second in command. And they said, come, Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So make us gods that we can worship, that can be in our midst, who can help us. Aaron answered them, okay, take off the gold earrings that you, your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, these are your gods, Israel. These are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And in that way, they create an idol for the people to bow down to. And and it's ironic when you look at this, because at the very moment that these guys are creating an idol to worship, God is up on the mountain with Moses saying, hey, here, here are my 10 commandments. Number one, don't have any gods before me. And number two, don't make an idol out of anything in heaven or on earth or in the sea to bow down and worship because I'm a jealous God. And jealousy, by the way, is not a negative attribute. We can, there are times when it can be used negatively, but jealousy is simply saying, hey, I'm your God. I will not share you with another. But why? Why after the Israelites have seen so much I mean, literally, they have just seen their God do something that generations from now, they're going to point back to and say, look at the faithfulness of our God. They've just seen this with their own eyes. And yet in their moment when it's been 40 days and they're like, well, maybe God has abandoned us. We don't know where Moses is. So we're going to need to kind of come up with something ourselves. What's going on here? Why are they clamoring for an idol? 
because idols offer a a semblance of control in a chaotic world. Idols are tangible things that we can see with our eyes, touch with our hands, and give us the feeling that we can somehow control the unknowns of our life. And this is a, a perfectly natural human desire to be in control. I mean, think about our kids. They hear a noise, they get scared, they run into, our, into the parents' room. Why? Because they're running to somebody they feel that can protect them and give them control over the unknown, the scary thing. It's normal to want to run to things when we're scared, but the problem comes when we begin to turn to things that can't actually help us, when we begin to place our trust in things that are powerless to do so. And for the Israelites, they truly believed, well, we we served a God who was doing amazing things. We saw him do things powerfully, but here's the problem. Moses was our connection. Moses was our intermediary between us and Yahweh. Without Moses, we've got no connection. We've got no kind of ability to control this God, Yahweh. So what we really need is we need something that can give us control. We need an idol. Maybe it's an idol of Yahweh, or maybe it's just an idol of another God. It really doesn't matter so long as this idol is in our midst and we can worship it and make sacrifices to it so we can somehow influence the gods to come and help us and direct us and provide for us. I'm so glad we're nothing like the Israelites. <laughs> if, if you have any money with you, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you for it. Take out a piece of paper money right now. I'm going to give you just a few seconds to do that. Take out a piece of paper money. I promise I won't ask you for it. All right. I'd ask you to take out a credit card, but it doesn't work the same way. All right. If you've got a bill in front of you, turn it over. Look at the back. What do you notice written on the back? In God we trust. Isn't it interesting that in this day and age that they still have that printed on our our money? I mean, don't get me wrong. As a pastor, I love the fact that our money declares our dependence upon God. But as a realist kind of feels like an empty declaration, doesn't it? In fact, I would say it's closer to the truth to say that the God in which we actually trust is the very bill upon which that statement is printed. In America, in our society, for us as a church, this is the single biggest idol that we have. A couple years ago, we did a survey saying, what are the things that you tend to place your trust in over and above God? This was the runaway winner our money. And think about it. It fits perfectly what an idol really is. It's, we can see it with our eyes. We can touch it with our hands. We can possess it. And it has within it an inherent power. If we get sick, we can use this to go get medicine or to go see a doctor. If we're hungry, we can pull this out and we can go buy something to eat. If we're, if we're bored and we just want to have fun, this can help us. This to us is a rival God that can take care of us. And so, of course, we want more of it because the more we have, the more power, the more control, the more safety and security we think we have. 
And God is well aware of the fact that we have a tendency to worship our money. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. He's so well aware of the fact that we have a tendency to worship our money that he, re- he refers to our finances and our possessions 22,000 times in Scripture. That's three times more times than he refers to love, seven times more times than he refers to faith. Even Jesus recognized the power of it. Fully one-fifth of Jesus' teaching is on our finances and on our possessions. Almost half of his parables are about it because God recognized that our money has a tendency to become a rival God, something that we tend to worship. And when I say the word worship, I don't mean sing songs to, although there are some people who do that. When I talk about worship, all I'm simply saying is we ascribe worth to it. That's what worship means, to ascribe worth. And when we ascribe worth to something, we order our lives around it. We are willing to sacrifice time, energy, and other good things for that in order to get it or to possess it. Think about when you, you know, fell in love and all of a sudden you began to just, that's the only person you could think about. And you would, you would stay up to all hours of the night having conversations with that person. You guys are still doing that. I know. <laughs> it's awesome. Love you guys. So. When we worship something, we ascribe worth to it and it, or, our, we order our lives around it. And God recognized that we have this tendency to do it. Jesus referred to it this way. He said this, verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Skip down to verse 24 for a moment. Jesus said, nobody, no one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Last week, Lee talked about the tithe. And he made the point that, listen, God is God. He created everything. He does not need our stuff. He doesn't need our money. Now, you might push back and say, well, wait a minute. If we stopped giving to the church, well, then we'd have to, you know, it wouldn't be very long before we'd have to close the doors. And Lighthouse, this church, would cease to exist. And I would push back first and say, well, wait a minute. You're misunderstanding what the church is. The church is not this building. We are the church. And though it's true, if none of us gave, we would probably have to close the doors on this place. That doesn't mean that God's purposes would be thwarted because we can still be the church in our homes. We can still be the churches in our workplaces. There is a value to gathering together, but ultimately we get to be the church throughout the week, not just on Sundays. God doesn't need our stuff to accomplish his purposes, but he still asks us to give. Why? Because where our treasure is, where the things that we value are, our hearts tend to follow. Here's the point. God isn't after our money. What's he after? Our hearts. God is interested in our hearts. And he recognizes that the quickest way to our hearts, the greatest impediment to us being able to fully worship him is our pocketbook. And so he says, do you trust me more than this? 
The tithe is a way of declaring to God, but also to ourselves, I value you more than I value this. But it's more than just a value statement, isn't it? It's also a declaration of trust. I trust you, God, more than I trust my bank account. You, God, are my provider. You're my protector. You're my refuge, my strong fortress that I can run to in time of need. This, while this promises safety and security, ultimately all it offers in the end is slavery. 2 Peter 2 verse 19 states that people are enslaved to whatever has mastered them. People are slaves of whatever has mastered them. And I would suggest that there are some of us here this morning who are not in control of their finances. Their finances are in control of them. We have been utterly mastered by our stuff. Maybe part of that mastery looks like we think about money all the time. And you don't have to be poor, by the way, to be focused on money. There are plenty of people who have far more than we do who are absolutely fixated on it. Think about it constantly. Think about ways to get more of it. Think of Rockefeller. Somebody says, man, you are the wealthiest person in the world. How much is enough? (laughs) Just a little more. And enough is never enough. And so they find them, you find yourself running and grasping and sacrificing because we, remember, we worship it. And when we worship it, we order our lives around it. So you sacrifice integrity. You sacrifice friendships. You sacrifice family and the other good things, valuable things, because you just need to keep climbing that ladder just a little longer. I used to teach over at Newport Harbor High School and I would sit with these kids who, from the world's perspective, have everything they could want. All the newest technological toys, clothes that were way better than mine. They were driving cars that I could never dream of driving. And when I actually got to know these kids and kind of figured out what made them tick, and Egypt would probably say the same thing, as you get to know these kids, they had everything the world says was important, but there was one thing that they desperately wanted more than anything else. Time with their parents. And that's the one thing that their parents who were trying so hard to provide their kids with everything they could possibly need, the one thing their parents were not able to give them because they were constantly focused on other things, constantly distracted. So these kids are clamoring for relationship and the parents are like, here's stuff. So one of the ways that money can control us is simply being something that we worship and we order our lives around. But another way that some of us in here aren't in control of our money, our money is in control of us, is because we are up to our necks in debt. The world says you need this, you need that. We live in the midst of one of the wealthiest counties in the entire country, which is one of the, or or the most wealthy country in the entire world. And we look around and we see what other people have and we figure, well, I need to be like that. And so we spend money that we are going to earn, not money that we've already earned because we're trying to live the American dream. And we find ourselves becoming more and more indebted. And we find that we are losing joy. We find that we, it's tearing our families apart. The, the, one of the number one arguments that couples have is over our finances raise your hand if you are married and you raise your hand if you're married first just raise your hand just out of curiosity now 
Look around. Keep it up. Come on, it's not that long. Calisthenics. Keep your hand up if you have never, or if you have had a fight about money, but you can put your hand down if you and your spouse have never fought about money. Go ahead. <laughs> Mike Jones just put his arm down and Clarissa's just like, huh? They will have that fight a little bit later. Okay, so put it down. I want you to notice whether you're married or not, this is an issue. Our finances are an issue and it's becoming an issue. <laughs> So what I want to do this morning, very briefly, and I'm not going to belabor this, but I want to spend a little bit of time on this. I simply want to ask the question, do you control your money or does your money control you? On the back of your handout, there are five signs that money is controlling you and then five ways to take control of our money. Let's just go through this line by line and we're just going to look at it for a moment. Five signs that your money is controlling you. Sign number one, you constantly worry about having enough of it. Again, you don't have to be poor to be fixated on money. But if you find that in your own life, you are constantly thinking about, how am I going to pay the bills? How much does that cost? Should we do this? Should we do that? How, am I, how can I get just a little bit more? How can I improve my financial standing? How can I keep up with them? If you're finding yourself doing that over and over again, if money is at the forefront of your thoughts a good amount of time, chances are you are controlled by your money. Sign number two, you don't plan for expenses, you react to them. If you don't have a budget or some sort of a plan, and you think about things like, well, today I don't have to pay insurance on my car, but within the next six months I'm going to. Today I may not have to pay for my sons to go to college, but eventually I'm going to need to. Today I'm not going to retire, but eventually I'm going to need to. And if you have not considered things like that, if you have not considered those expenses that come up, and instead you're just kind of living for, well, I can afford what I want right now, here and now, so I'm going to have it, then you're going to find yourself time and again reacting to these unexpected bills and you're going to find yourself robbing from Paul to pay Peter and vice versa. You're going to find yourself taking one credit card and putting a balance over onto another credit card and back and forth and you're going to keep this juggling act going and you're going to build a house of cards that is your finances and all the while you have to run like a hamster on a wheel desperately trying to get enough so it doesn't all come crumbling down. But at least you have that new iPhone. <laughs> so if you don't plan for expenses, but instead you find yourself reacting, then you are controlled by your finances. Number three, you judge peace people based upon the amount of money that they have. Maybe you look around and you see people who are driving these cars and doing these things and you just kind of go, Ugh, disgusting, those people, you know. They don't deserve that. Or maybe you find yourself looking around and going, I so want to be them. I am so jealous of the fact that they have this house. They have this or that. Or maybe you find yourself interacting with people based upon their income levels. Right? You only, you, you, when you find out what somebody does or you find out what somebody drives, you suddenly start interacting with them differently than you would otherwise. If you find that your estimation of people or the way you interact with them, or even the way you think about them changes based upon their financial standing, then chances are you are controlled by money. And this, by the way, is not an issue of how much you have. We can be very wealthy and still be controlled by money, or you can be very poor and be controlled by money, or you can be very wealthy and have money has very little grip on your heart, or you can have very little that the world says is important and still not allow money to be your God or your idol. 
It has nothing to do with the actual amount in our bank account. Number four, you find yourself being dishonest in order to protect your financial standing. If you find yourself sacrificing your integrity, cutting corners, making up stories, perhaps fudging the numbers on your tax return, perhaps fudging the numbers on your um, reimbursements for work or whatever, or if you don't find yourself being, keeping those financial agreements that you've made, you just kind of say, well, you know, I don't have the money, so sorry, I can't pay you. Yeah, I know you did the work, I just can't pay you, my bad. Sue me. If you find yourself doing that, then you're probably controlled by money. And number five, money controls your mood. When you have it, life's good. The sun shines. Relationships are sweet. But when you don't have it, the sun never shines. Your time with your family is bland. You can't even find, you, you find you can't even be present with them. You are so overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and depression that you're just blah. And if money has that sort of control over you, then you are controlled by your finances. So now let's, let's move to the five ways to take control of our money. Number one, and by the way, we're going we're gonna to go over some of these far deeper next week. Lee's going to look into some of these things a lot deeper. But I just want to tacitly hit this so we can continue to ask ourselves the question, what is my relationship to my stuff? Five ways to take control of your money. Number one, develop a plan and stick to your plan. I find that anytime I walk into Costco... If I have a very specific list of things I'm there to shop for, I can usually get out of there for a reasonable amount of money. But if I walk into there without a list and just kind of figuring I'll be able to know what I need when I see it, <laughs> I, this weird thing, I don't actually spend less. I spend far, far more. And I probably am not alone. When we don't have a plan, we end up spending more and purchasing things that we don't necessarily need. We don't know where our money's going. We just know that it's not there. And at the end of the month, we kind of go, well, what happened? So the point here is, if you want to have financial security, if you do not want to be controlled by your money, have a budget. Have a financial plan that you have thought through. I know where our money is going. I know where we are putting it. This is how much we're giving. This is how much we're investing. This is how we're, what we're setting aside for our insurance, for our education, for our retirement, all those kind of things. It may not be a lot, but this is how we, what we have left to kind of play with. And then you don't have to be begrudging when your wife says, I want to go out on a date. Like, we don't have the money for that. You can figure it out and you can make it work. Have a plan and then actually follow the plan. That is one step towards financial stability. Step number two, and this one is rocket science, totally. Don't spend more than you make. Shocking. Live within your means. Here's the thing. We live in a society that says you need a new phone every two years at least. In fact, you deserve it to have it whenever you want, so you should be able to trade in within one year. You deserve to have a new car every five years. You deserve to have a house. Heck, that's the American dream, isn't it? You need to own your own home. I find myself right now being caught up in that mindset. And we look around at our friends and we look at around at our society and we say, why am I not like them? I need to be like them. And we want so desperately to be experiencing the American dream. But when we finally start trying to wade into those waters by our own strength, we find that the American dream 
quite often is more like the American nightmare because we are leveraged beyond our ability. We are spending more than we are making and debt begins to pile up. Now those people, I mean, there was a book a couple years ago, more like a couple decades ago, came out called um, The Millionaire Next Door. And in this book, they talked about, they did a sociological study of the people that we as a society believe to be millionaires and who actually were millionaires. And here's what they found. They found that the people driving nice new cars, the people living in posh neighborhoods with very nice houses, the people wearing the $6,000 Rolex and all those other things that we consider to be the wealthy, most of, more often than not, those people were, were not millionaires. Those people were leveraged beyond their ability. They had a house of cards that were their finances and they were desperately trying to keep things afloat, but they were really up to their eyeballs in debt. Okay, well, who are the real millionaires? They found that, first of all, these people most often were not people who had had the money given to them by their families. Okay, so we can take that excuse off the table. These people were hard workers who held a job, who worked very hard, who didn't go buy a $6,000 watch. Oftentimes, they never spent more than $100 on a watch. They never really drove new cars. They got a car and they stuck with it for decades until they drove that thing into the ground, but they took care of it. If they purchased a house, they didn't purchase it in the extremely expensive areas. They purchased it in a reasonable area and they lived there their entire lives. These people also were very intentional about not spending more than they made. In fact, they saved a large percentage of their income every month and they invested it. And over time, their investments began to return interest. Rather than when you're in debt, you're paying interest payments and you're losing more money than you're actually making, they allowed the interest rate to begin working in their favor. These people were auto mechanics, gardeners, people that you would never expect to be a millionaire because they didn't look like it, because they didn't need to. But they had something that these people who look like millionaires never had, and that is security, peace. They were not controlled by their stuff. Now, the goal of this message, by the way, is not, I want to make you a millionaire. I simply want to break the grip of our money on our hearts because money can so easily become an idol, can so easily become a rival God that we will order our lives around. So never spend more than you make. Live within your means. Number three, give a percentage and save a percentage. This one pretty much goes without saying. Lee talked about last week. Tithing, the purpose of that is to declare to God and to ourselves that money is not our God, God is our God. Our trust is not in our stuff, our trust is in Him. That's one surefire way to begin to break the grip of of money over our hearts. But another thing that we need to do in order to find financial security is to save. In the same way that we give to God, we need to give to ourselves towards our future. We need to put away a little, a, a percentage every month of what we make. And in that way, you can begin allowing your money to work for you and to help you out. Number four, practice the art of waiting before you buy. This is one I'm very good at, especially since Groupon was invented. Um, And and Amazon is also not so helpful to me in this one. We are in a culture that is all about instant gratification. It says you deserve to have this and you deserve to have it now. You should buy it now, enjoy it now, pay for it later. And sure enough, that's exactly what we do. We buy things, we enjoy it in the here and now for a moment. And we're paying for it for much longer afterwards. The art of waiting before we buy simply says that if there is something that is not on your necessities list, food, 
your rent, electricity, all those kind of things. If there's something additional that you want, that's fine. It's okay to want things. Sleep on it. Give it a couple of days. And if at the end of a couple of days, A, it fits in your budget, you can afford it. And B, you still want it, then okay, buy it. But, and if it's over $100, maybe give it a week. But if at the end of that week or the end of those couple of days, you don't think about it, you're not remembering it, it's not at the forefront of your mind, then chances are you don't actually need it. So don't buy it. It's just a way of beginning to break that impulsivity that our society says is perfectly healthy, that you deserve to have it now. And lastly, and probably most importantly, in fact, I'm not even going to say mostly, this is the most important point. This is the whole point of this morning. We need to nurture our trust in God. I know that God was trying to do this with the Israelites. Remember, as he's he's walking them through the wilderness, he told them, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you manna in the morning, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to collect just enough manna for that day. I want you to eat all of it. I want you to go to bed with nothing left. When you wake up in the morning, I will provide manna for tomorrow. That's where we get this in in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. I think this is where it comes from. And I've often thought to myself, man, I want to see God provide in that way. I want to be, I want to see God provide in ways where I just go, man, he is faithful. And yet I don't want to be in this position of the Israelites kind of being dependent upon it. I want to know that I have a couple power bars in the back of my tent, just in case there's no manna on the ground in the morning. I want to hedge my bets. But um, there are a couple of ways we can begin to nurture our trust in God. The first one, I don't mean to hit this one over and over again, but it is such a a foundational one, is tithing. It is a way of declaring to God and to ourselves, I trust you more than my finances. But there's another way that we can nurture our dependence upon God. We can nurture our trust in him. And that is simply to remember the ways that God has been faithful in the past. Each and every one of us, I guarantee it, if you sat back and you said, how have I seen God show up? How have I seen God be faithful? Each of us could come up with a number of stories of ways that we have seen God be faithful when he said to trust me and follow me. So many of the Psalms, as you read through them, are David just saying, God, here are the ways you've been faithful. Even Psalm 13, probably the darkest of all the Psalms, where David's going, God, don't you even care about me? Don't you see me? Why have you turned your back on me? Even Psalm 13 ends with this, but I have seen your faithfulness. You have been good to me and I will worship you. Even in the midst of despair, David is able to remember the ways that God has been faithful and it brings light into the darkness of the moment. I, I personally experienced this um, about four years ago. At the time, I was uh, a pastor at another church And I really felt like God, I recognized that God began to show me the current state of my heart. I had been showing up to minister to other people, but I had neglected to cultivate my own intimacy with him. I was serving out of the overflow of my abilities rather than my intimacy with God. I was serving out of obligation and responsibility rather than out of joy. And God kind of pointed this out to me and, and he said, okay, do you trust me? Because it's time for you to step out of this job. 
I want to spend some time with you restoring your soul before you ever try to restore someone else's. Which was a scary thought because at the time, Kathy was still working through her hours as a marriage and family therapist. She wasn't making any money. And we were a one-income family with a one-year-old boy. And we talked about it and we prayed about it and we agreed if God is telling us to do it, we need to do it. And so I went in and through a couple of conversations with my boss, we decided it's time for me to step out of my role. And I'm thinking, hey, maybe three months. And he goes, no, we, we actually think that it would probably be better if this is what you feel like God's calling you to do. It's probably better for you to do it now. And I'm going, I'm not ready. I, I have maybe a couple thousand dollars in the bank. I am not prepared for this. I felt God saying to me, do you trust me? Are you willing to follow me regardless of the cost? Yes, I trust you. Yes, I trust you. So I'm walking out of my boss's office. I've just resigned. I walk down to my, my office and sitting on my desk, somebody put it there that week and I hadn't been in my office since, is a picture frame of a couple that I'd married like three months prior and a little thank you note. Look at the picture, and it's kind of like, that was a good day. As I'm reading the thank you letter, there's a check in the envelope for $500. Now, I had been working and pastoring at this church for six years, and not one time had I ever walked to my desk and found money there. But on the day that I resign and I say, God, I need you to provide because I don't know how we're going to do this, you get a check. But that's not it story continues because that same week we got a much larger tax return than we anticipated because again i am horrible at finances and i don't know how to fill out w-2s apparently so we got this much larger tax return than i anticipated which was a huge blessing and then because of you know vacation stuff which i'm not very good at taking we got that paid out and suddenly we have three months of income in the bank that i had not prepared for it was god just kind of saying here and you know what my first thought was this is going to take three months. What if I give it away? Can we speed up this process? Literally, that thought went through my mind. And this is what God told me. As clearly as I've ever heard God impress something on my heart, I didn't hear him audibly, but it was almost that powerful to me. He said, be still. Don't try to fix this. Don't try to get out of this. Don't try to fix it on your own. Be still. And I knew exactly what he meant by that. Don't try to go get a job. Just be still and rest because I'm going to make you lie down in this green pasture. I'm going to force you to lead you beside this still water because I'm going to restore your soul. And he kept us in that posture, not for three months, but for six months. During that time, I was not allowed to go online to look for jobs. Now, I had to have my wife and some other guys hold me accountable in that area because I like to fix stuff. But also... As things came along and, and I kind of go, okay, you know, here's this opportunity. Can I do this? Can I teach over at Vanguard? Yeah, sure. You can do that. I really felt peace in that. If I wasn't pursuing it, God started bringing stuff and people into my life over the course of those six months. At the end of it, I'm having a journaling session with God and I go, God, eh, it doesn't matter. Long story short, God said, after six months, you now have permission. You can start looking again. But here's the point. Whatever you do, whether it's teaching, whether it's writing, whether it's pastoring, I want to be in it with you. I want to join you in this because the difference between now and then at your old church is that you were trying to do it by your own strength. I want to do it with you. When I finally, literally the 
the day after that conversation with God in my journal, my cousin Clifford, who used to go to church here, emailed me the job description that Lee had put out three months prior. Hey, we're looking for this guy. I, I'm not sure if you, you're interested in the job, but here's this. And it was like, the, it described to me. Oh, awesome. And that was a really fun part of this journey. But here's the point. When I finally signed on the dotted line, we are coming to start working here at Lighthouse Church. Number one, I was a radically different person than the man who had left my previous church. There I was a shell. I could play the part of a pastor, but I really was empty inside, and I was, I was trying to give out of the dregs of my heart. God did an unbelievable work in my heart over the course of those eight months between that church and here. Furthermore, when I looked at my bank account, I'll give you one guess how much was left in it. All right, I'll just tell you. There were still three months' worth of income in my bank account. Now, I'm not a good budgeter. I'm not great with numbers. I'm not an accountant. But I can't explain how God could provide for my wife and myself and my son without an income for eight months, but he did. And like the Israelites in the desert, I have seen God's faithfulness in this area of my finances. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I am not suggesting that if you're unhappy with your job, quit, God will take care of you. But if you feel that God is asking you to do something, to step out in faith, to trust him, maybe it's to be honest in a certain area. Maybe it's to reconcile in a certain area. Maybe it is to pay back something. I don't know what it is. I'm not even going to try to figure it out. But if you feel that God is saying, trust me in this, then I want to encourage you to do it because I've seen firsthand the ways that God... It's like he put my trust in him on steroids through that time. Now, I didn't enjoy those eight months in the wilderness. They were uncomfortable. It graded at my identity as a man. And yet, I'm a much better follower now of Jesus Christ because I have seen him to be faithful. And I can declare it. I heard it with my ears, but now I have seen it and tasted it with my own, my own self. My wife and I have seen God's provision. And I want that for you. I wouldn't want to steal that from you simply because you want to have control. So, one of the ways that we can take back control of our money over our our lives is to cultivate those opportunities to trust God through our tithing, through remembering his faithfulness, and then to step out in obedience and trust when he tells us to. Is that fair? For some of you who are going... um, Well, okay, this is great, but the reality is we are up to our eyeballs in debt and we don't know what to do. A couple of thoughts. One, and this is such great timing, we have this Financial Priest University. It's a nine-week course. It's going to be on Mondays starting January 13th, led by John and Liz Nelson. If you want to have control over your finances, if you go, I want to have a financial plan for the future so I can actually plan for my kids going to college or I can actually plan for retirement and I don't know how to get there, I don't know how to get out from under the mounting credit card debts, that's the class for you. And I would challenge you to mark it on your card that you're interested in going. Furthermore, uh, there's a book. If you can't even wait that long, you want to get started now thinking along these lines. The best book that I have found on this subject 
is the total money makeover by David Ramsey, the same guy who put Financial Peace University together. I went through and it started giving me, it was like, oh my gosh, this is so much easier than I thought it was. Because I'm not like Chris. It's not easy for me. I'm not a financially savvy person. I'm not like Lee. Lee is amazing at leading the finances of this church. I'm so grateful he's in that role because honestly, we would not be in the position we were if I was the one in charge of our budget. I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, heck yes, we all need segues to go across the street. Absolutely. <laughs> Whatever. So check that book out. We, in, a, in a moment, we're going to take our, I'm going to have the worship team come forward. In a moment, we're going to take our offering again with Lee. If you yeah, give out of God what God has told you to, do not give out of obligation or, or guilt. I want you to pray with your spouse I want you to seriously sit down with your God and say, where, how do you want me to respond to this? But don't simply give right now out of guilt. Give out of what God is placing on your heart to give. Furthermore, one of the best ways that you can respond right now is to simply kind of check off. Here's a prayer request that I have. You can mark that down on your connection card. You can mark down you want to be part of Financial Peace University. You can mark down you want to be part of a small group. Drop that in, your, in the giving baskets as they go by. And that's one way that you can respond. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to begin to respond to God. God, I'm sorry for the ways that we, the church, have gotten in the way and have colored and misrepresented your heart to the world, making it feel like all you really care about is our, our pocketbook. And we declare that you are a God who loves us more than anything in this world and that you desperately want our hearts. And we confess that our, our money often is that rival God that gets in the way and that we can lean on rather than leaning on you. So Father, would you begin to break the grip that our stuff has on our hearts? Would you glorify yourselves in this area? Would you give us freedom? from the bondage that we find ourselves in? Would you make us a people who are generous in the same way that you bless the Israelites and you say, I'm not blessing you for your own good. I'm blessing you so you can be a blessing to all nations. Would you show us how to be blessings to our neighbors, to our families? Would you use what you have given us to glorify yourself and advance your kingdom for your name's sake, not for our own? Jesus, in your holy name, amen. We're going to take offering right now.